Well, good morning. Great to see everybody here this morning. Uh, My name is Gary Weber. I'm the pastor here at Southside, and I'm delighted to be with you today. I'm going to ask you, if you would, to open your Bible to John chapter 7. Uh, If you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, we'll put these uh, verses on the screen so you can follow along. John chapter 7, I'm going to read a rather lengthy passage, verses 25 uh, 25 and following. So if you'll follow along, John chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said... Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? For we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and where I am, and then I am going, then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Jews and teach among the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Verse 40, when they heard these things, some of the people said, this really is a prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, Why why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this encounter that's been recorded and faithfully handed down for the years. Thank you, Lord, that we can witness it uh, through the pages of your word and that we can learn from it. And Father, today, I pray that we would truly wrestle with the same questions this crowd was wrestling with 2,000 years ago. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who do we believe Jesus is? Lord, I pray for this group that's gathered here today, for those who may question and wonder and they're coming and their hearts are open lord may that question be resolved for them today i pray for those who are here today who uh, may not even have thought of that question that today father it would burn within them and then i pray for those of us who think we've resolved that question 
And yet maybe this scripture has something to say to us as well. For we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, I need your help this morning. I need you to turn to somebody uh, around you. Can't be somebody that you already know the the answer to this question. And ask them this question. Where are you from? Okay, now I'm not asking you to get a whole whole background, autobiography. Just the question is, where are you from? All right, and you got about 10 seconds. Ready, go. Okay. All right. That's good. That's good. You know, when you ask that question to somebody or when you are asked that question, it may be a tough, some of you may have thought, I don't know how I'm going to answer that question. Do I say I'm from here or from here or from here? Um, you know, I'm, whenever I'm asked that question, I always hesitate just a little bit because I was actually born in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, but my dad was in the army, and so we moved a lot when I was little. We lived in Germany, or what was West Germany then, tells you how old I am. Yeah, lived in West Germany for a while. Uh, we lived in South Carolina for a while. Uh, but Ohio was where I was born. And then when I was in middle school, we moved to Jacksonville, and I lived in Jacksonville for a while. And then when Sherry and I got married, we moved away, and we lived in three other states, and our kids were all born in other states. And then I came back to Jacksonville. So when somebody says, hey, where are you from? It's like, hmm... What do you mean by that question? What, how far back do you want me to go? Is it where I was born? Is it, or, here's another thing, where are you from? Does that mean something bigger? In other words, like, where are your people from? Like, do you, like your ancestors, and you go back and you say, well, originally we might, you know, immigrated over from England, or we came over. There are all kinds of ways that you can answer this question, where are you from? I remember when I was nine years old and we moved to Jacksonville, uh, it, there was this interesting thing going on, it, maybe it was unique to the South, I don't know, but there was kind of a resurgence of the Confederacy. And so I was in fourth grade, and, and I came in, and I was new, and uh, it was a rather small school, and so the boys knew I wasn't, I hadn't been there the year before, and then when I started talking, they started saying, you're a Yankee. You're a Yankee. And, and I, like, I don't even know what a, what is a Yankee? I don't even know what that is. But, but I found out that they had, sort of, they had sort of had this idea, well, you're not from the South. And there was, this, there was this real pride in being a Southerner, and I wasn't from the South. And I, I remember thinking, like, I don't think I fit in here. I, and I, it was very, very awkward and very hard because the customs were different. Like, you don't eat cream of wheat, you eat grits. I mean, it's just all kinds of strange cultural things were going on. And I realized I didn't fit in. And many people sort of pigeonhole people based on where they're from. You do it too. We all do it without even knowing. The minute you hear where somebody's from, you have all kinds of ideas in your mind. If they're from New England or they're from out west or maybe if they're from the deep south or maybe they're from the Midwest. And there are these ideas that we have, especially if you get to other cultures and other countries. Stereotypes come into play and we automatically sort of have a framework and we put people in these very specific boxes. The minute you meet somebody, people passively check the resume of the new people they meet. And it causes us to, to sometimes maybe mis, misinterpret people's intentions as we look at them through the filter of where they're from or what, and what we perceive that, that has to say, uh, say about them. The reality is you can't control that about somebody. You have, I mean, you are fr- where you're from, where you're from. That's what it is. There's not much you could have done about that. And the way people interpret that has more to say about their bias and, and their predisposed ideas than it does about the reality of who you are. 
that is something that's really ingrained in sort of our human character, our human nature, and it's nothing new. It was going on even all the way back into this passage that we're reading from John chapter 7. John 7 is a very interesting chapter of the Gospel of John, and it's not one that many people spend a lot of time in. There's a lot of other stories before and after 7 that that sort of capture our interest. But John 7 has an underlying theme of this search that's going on. It's kind of a game of hide-and-seek. Jesus had left Jerusalem. Uh, He had been at the height of his popularity. Everybody was following after Jesus. Thousands of people were after him. Jesus said some extremely controversial things Everybody left him. They're like, well, maybe he's not who we thought he was. And so they leave. And Jesus is just left with his 12. And at that point, the religious leaders begin to seek to kill Jesus. So Jesus goes back to his hometown, Galilee, and he's there. And his brothers, some time passes, and his brothers point out, hey, there's another big Jewish feast going on down in Jerusalem. You should come with us, do some miracles, rehabilitate your reputation. And Jesus says, now I'm not really interested in that, but you guys go. But then Jesus actually comes back in secret. And he's kind of lurking around the edges of this festival that's going on. And he's listening to all the things that people are saying about him. And finally, about halfway through the festival, Jesus stands up and gives this amazing teaching. And in it, you come to find out that it really wasn't Jesus who was hiding. It was the religious leaders who've always been hiding behind the law. They they sort of have put on this facade, this appearance of who they want people to believe they are. But underneath that, that's not who they really are. That, That they're hiding behind religion, they're hiding behind reputation... And, and we said last week that we're so glad nobody does that anymore. But that's what they were doing then. And so everybody was kind of hiding behind this reputation. And so Jesus is engaged in this. Well, as the conversation goes on, they began to ask questions, some significant questions about Jesus. To, to peel back the curtain and figure out who is he really? Who is Jesus? Where did he come from? What does he claim about himself? And ultimately, for us today, we still wrestle with all the same questions they were wrestling with in John chapter 7. All of us here have, have been at a point in our journey of faith where we've asked these questions about who Jesus is and what he claims about himself. Or maybe you're beginning that journey and you're starting to say, hey, I, I better at least just check out who Jesus is. But, but all of us have wrestled with these questions. So today I want to look at this, this controversy and some of these questions that John 7 brings up. And, and ultimately I wanted to come back to this. Who do you say that Jesus is? Not who your mama says, not who your grandmama said, and, and, and not, who, not who you think I say he is, but, but you. Because ultimately, that's what Jesus was, was driving at in this dialogue, in this conversation. And so we're going to look at this together. The first thing that really comes up is Jesus' origin. Where is Jesus from. And these questions are really pervasive throughout the Gospel of John. But you read in verse 27 where the, the folks were asking, but, when, but we know where, the man, where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So there was this idea, as the Jews were anticipating the arrival of a Savior, of a Messiah, there was this idea that when he comes, it will be this mysterious thing and nobody will be able to explain it. Like, we, you won't be able to track back and say, well, this is where he was born, and this is where his parents and his grandparents. It'll be so spectacular and so miraculous that, that you won't be able to answer those questions. But these guys were saying, but we kind of know where he's from. So that, doesn't that kind of disqualify him, that, that we, we can kind of discount his claims because we know his mama and daddy. I mean, his daddy was a carpenter, and we know his brothers, and so that he can't really 
be the Messiah. Later on in verse 41 and 42, uh, the crowd says this, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So it, th- there's, this, there's this idea, there had been some prophecies in the Old Testament that, that the Messiah would come out of Bethlehem, and they're saying, well, but this guy's from Galilee. And, and you read it again in verse 52 as they're kind of giving Nicodemus a hard time for seeming to advocate for Jesus. They say to him, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, interestingly enough, these religious leaders who were know-it-alls totally missed the fact that there were, there were prophets from Galilee. The, the prophet Jonah was from Galilee. And they, they, didn't, they didn't either know that or they were choosing to ignore that for their purposes. But they've got this idea. They say, well, he cannot be the one because, in fact, the, the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to come from Bethlehem. He's not going to come from Galilee. Now, this is really interesting if you're a Bible nerd. So if you're not, you can kind of tune me out for a minute. You don't have to listen to this, but this is fascinating. If you read the Gospels, and there are four of them in your Bible, and they record the life and story and the teachings of Jesus Christ, and they're told from four different perspectives. If any four of you were to come together and you were to tell a story, you would tell it differently. You would tell it based on things that you saw, things that you experienced. You would tell it based on what was important to you, how you felt about the story. Well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are no different than us. They would tell the story from their unique perspectives. In the, go- in the four Gospels, only two of them give what we call the nativity narrative. In other words, th- these are the stories of the birth of Jesus. And when we get to December, we love to hear those. We, we want to hear Luke and we want to hear Matthew. Because Matthew and Luke tell the story of the birth of sweet eight-pound, six-ounce baby Jesus. That's... <laughs> And that's the Jesus we like. So we, we like those stories when it comes to the Christmas story. John does not tell that story. But that doesn't mean that John discounts the truth of the story. The reason John probably didn't tell that story is because it had already been told. John wrote the Gospel of John much later. Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already been written. They were already circulating. Matthew and Luke had already told the story of the birth of Jesus, about how Mary and Joseph had to travel from Galilee to where? Bethlehem, because that's where uh, Joseph's family was from, and there was a census. And so while they were there, it was time for Mary to give birth, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem in a barn. And then you remember the story. There was, there was uh, an evil King Herod who sought to kill uh, the Messiah. He had heard stories, that rumors that this king had been born. And so God sent an angel to Joseph in a dream and said, you need to get out of here. So Joseph packed up his family and they left Bethlehem and they went to where? Anybody remember? Yes, Egypt. They went to Egypt and they hid in Egypt until there was a time where an angel appeared to Joseph and said, it's safe for you to go back. But the scripture tells us, but Joseph didn't go back to Bethlehem. He went back to his and to the hometown where he and Mary had met, which was Galilee. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem, traveled to Egypt where he was for a set period of time. We don't know how long. And then when they came back to Israel, they moved back to Galilee. Now, John knows that all the Christians know that. So there's a sense as he's writing this that there's an irony going on here. 
that as he's recording what the Pharisees and religious leaders said about, but isn't the Messiah supposed to be born in Bethlehem? John knows that all of us know that, in fact, Jesus really was born in Bethlehem. So John probably didn't include it because it was already, include, it was already included in, in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel. And, and so there's a, there's a power in the irony that John is telling here about the birth of Jesus. What's interesting about this is Jesus does not entertain the debate about his origins. He doesn't say, oh, you guys don't really know. I actually was born in Bethlehem, but then we moved to Egypt, and then we moved to Galilee. I mean, he didn't go through and try to explain all that uh, to them. Instead, he focuses on the very thing that John's gospel focuses on, and that is that Jesus didn't come out of a barn in Bethlehem. Jesus is God and came from God. John begins his gospel, and he says, the word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God, and, the, and that the God came and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And so John cuts through all the biographical history and goes to the true origin, and that's what Jesus is talking about as well. He says, you guys may think you know my story, but you don't know my true origins. And you don't know the one who sent me, and that's what really matters. That you don't know God. You don't know the Father, and that's where I'm from. And if you knew him, you would, you would recognize me. Now, interesting in this crowd, the disciples would have been with Jesus when he went back to, to, uh, to Jerusalem for this feast. And in the crowd of disciples, there were 12 of them, there was one of them who almost didn't follow Jesus for this very reason. And if you remember the story of Nathaniel, he's one of those apostles that we don't really talk a lot about. But in John chapter 1, verse 46, we read about his story. One of the other disciples named Philip went to find his buddy Nathaniel and said, Hey, Nathaniel, you'll never believe this. We have found the Messiah. You should come with us. And, and this is what Nathaniel said to him. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? This guy can't be the Messiah. Interesting, when you read the rest of the story, Nathaniel goes with Philip, goes to meet Jesus, and as he encounters Jesus, Jesus so impresses him that Nathaniel's questions just disappear. They never get answered. And so I find it interesting in this story, Nathaniel's in the crowd, and all these people are talking about, well, where is he from? Is he from Galilee? Is he from Na- Well, If the Messiah comes, he would really be from Bethlehem, or we wouldn't even know where the Messiah comes from. And I just think Nathaniel's probably standing there thinking, I had all those questions too. I had every single one of those questions. I wrestled with all that too. And you know what? I still don't think I know the answer, but I know who he is. Because I know where he's really from. He's really from God. So even among Jesus' circle, there was somebody who had the very same question, and yet he was so overcome with his experience with Jesus that the question kind of faded in the background. Listen, interpreting the facts of Jesus apart from his divine purpose will never be enough to convince people of the truth. Facts by themselves are simply points of reference. They are useless unless and until they lead us to the truth. Many times we try to convince people of spiritual truth through intellectual facts. And I think intellectual facts are important. Don't get me wrong. They lead us to spiritual truths. But ultimately, intellectual facts by themselves are not truth. Intellectual facts by themselves, 
point us to greater truth. And that's what Jesus is saying in this conversation. See, the crowd wanted all the facts. They wanted all their questions about Jesus answered. But so many of them were unwilling to follow those facts back to where they led, which was to the truth of who Jesus was and where he came from. As If you are here and you're somebody who's been wrestling with who is Jesus, or maybe you're a believer and you've got a friend, you've got a family member who's wrestling with who is Jesus, and, and you are always raising, or your friend is always raising, one more question, one more objection. Well, what about this? What about this? Maybe it has issues to do with faith and science. And you think, well, but what about the dinosaurs? Can I just tell you, I don't care about the dinosaurs. I mean, those are interesting things, and, and the Bible has stuff to say about all that. But as long as we are looking for a, for a breadcrumb trail of facts, we can always be distracted from lifting our eyes and looking to where the facts are pointing us, which is to Jesus. Nathaniel miraculously was able to overcome that. He didn't check his brain at the door, but he was able to overcome that and begin to see the truth of who Jesus actually is. Now, all this leads us to, to the bigger question. The question's about who Jesus claimed to be. And this is what's important for us to know today. If you're here and, and you are someone who's struggling to know who is Jesus, can I trust him? Or you're, you are journeying with someone, a family member, who's struggling to know who is Jesus. Who Jesus claimed to be is really important in helping you determine who you believe he is. You see, the problem is not the existence of Jesus or even where he was born. But the question really is, what did he claim about himself? And are his claims true? Now, there are some who would say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've heard some people say, Jesus is a great teacher. He's a moral teacher. But he never claimed that for himself. His followers claimed that for him. What's interesting about that argument, if you've heard somebody make it, or maybe it's an argument you've made yourself, is if you go back and you look in the past 2,000 years of church history, that is a new argument. Really, only within the past 200 years have people said that and has it stuck. If you go back further than 200 years ago, nobody's argument was whether Jesus claimed to be God or not. It was settled fact. Everybody believed, yeah, Jesus claimed to be God. It's really only in the last 200 years where people tried to strip that claim away from Jesus in order to say, Jesus, see, Jesus is just like Confucius. Or Jesus is just like the Buddha. Or Jesus is just like Muhammad. He's a great religious leader with great spiritual truth, but he didn't claim that for himself. His followers tried to stick that label on him. Let me just make a comparison to why that claim is so new and, and, and with something in our recent history. If you watch the news much, one of the things that's kind of disturbing when you hear it is, is there are many people in the world who would claim that the Holocaust never happened, right? I mean, you, you hear that. The Holocaust never happened. Of course, any serious student of history knows that it did happen. And that claim, that argument, really doesn't hold a lot of water today. Why? Because there are people who are living who endured it. There are people around, and you can, you can find them and you can find their stories, who, whose family was, was impacted by the effects of the Holocaust. So the argument, when we hear it today, we know that's not, that's not right. Well, it would have been much the same in the early part of the church. That when people would have made the claim, if they did, that Jesus didn't claim to be the Messiah, there were people who were still living who would have said, uh-uh-uh, I was there. 
I heard him say these things. I saw him do these things. So anytime there would have been people who would have heard and seen, who would have been eyewitnesses, the arguments that Jesus didn't make those claims could not have stood. And so it took hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the argument began to stick that Jesus didn't claim that for himself. So we can rest assured that Jesus, in fact, did claim the things that he claimed. We know that the accounts that we have in the scripture are accurate. We know that as far as ancient literature goes, they're the most reliable ancient texts that we have. They're more reliable than than Homer's Iliad or Odyssey or many of the things you were asked to read in English. They're much more reliable than that. We know that these are the recorded words. And so, so Jesus did, in fact, claim. And if he did, then Jesus claims, claimed to be God, therefore, means that he can't simply be just another great thinker or teacher. Do you see how that works? It's impossible for Jesus to, on one hand, claim to be God, and if he weren't God, just to be another great teacher. So the Jews in John chapter 7 have four basic theories that they're suggesting about Jesus. And Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York at the Redeemer Church, he says one of them is impossible, two of them are improbable, and one is inescapable. So I want to look at these arguments because some of you here may have these same arguments, the same ones that they had in John chapter 7, the same ones that people have had for thousands of years. So let's look at them. The first one, the impossible option, that Jesus is a good man. Look what they said in John 1, 12. And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. In verse 48, you hear them say this. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is a prophet. In other words, he's a good man, he's a prophet, he lines up with all the other religious leaders. Here's the problem. No one who ever claimed what Jesus claims has ever stood up the scrutiny of time and, and, and true thought over the course of history. Let me share with you, I think we've got some pictures here of some people. Let me just share with you some pictures and see what you know about these people. Uh, this, is, uh, this is Ghulam Ahmed of Kadim, India, born in 1835, lived to 1908. Anybody recognize him? Anybody know him? Read anything by him? Okay, this guy was a Christian who, in fact, claimed to be the Messiah, that he claimed to be Jesus, that that I'm the Messiah, I am God, I'm divine. Let me show you another picture of somebody else. This is Ali Nuri, um, and he was born in 1817 and lived to 1864. Uh, He's another person who claimed to be God. Let me, and if, if you're not interested really in old history, maybe you like something a little more recent, let me share this face with you. This guy, you might recognize him. This is uh, David Schaller. He is a former MI5 agent. And on July 7th, 2007, he declared himself to be the Messiah. Okay? Now, why do I share that with you? Because when you look in our recent history and you, you look and you hear these claims you and I both immediately know that there is something wrong with those people. We would not look at David Schaller and say, well, David Schaller claimed to be God, but, you know, really he was just a good man. He was a prophet. We would never say that about them. And so it's impossible to say that about Jesus. It's impossible to say that on one hand he claimed to be God, and on another hand he was just a good man or a prophet. Anyone who ever demanded and received the kind of allegiance, that kind of allegiance has inevitably led to great destruction and great evil. Do you understand now why it is impossible for Jesus to claim to be God and just be a good man or be a prophet? See, Here's another thing. Here's another reason why Jesus can't claim to be God and be a good person. When Jesus had encounters with people in the gospel, 
the man who was lowered through the ceiling, if you remember the paralyzed guy. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Or the woman who's caught in adultery. And they, they bring her and she's cast before Jesus. And Jesus says, go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. Can I just ask you, who was Jesus to be able to forgive people? Jesus had not been the one violated. I mean, that's a pretty presumptuous and arrogant thing to say. That's what the Pharisees heard. Who are you to forgive sins? Well, if in fact Jesus was just a man, he was nobody to forgive sins. He was an egotist. He was narcissistic. But if in fact he was who he claimed to be, if in fact he was God, then every sin that was committed was a violation of him. And it was his right to say, I forgive you. Because he was the one who had been wronged. And so that was part of what was going on. Part of the reason the crowds struggled against him. So, so it's impossible for Jesus just to have been a good man. Let's, let's talk about the two improbable things. Two things that they said about him that's improbable. First, that he was a liar. That he basically intentionally deluded other people. Here's what they said in John 1.12. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. You see, if Jesus claimed to be God, we know he can't be a good man. So the other option is that he's just a liar. That, that he just intentionally went around deluding people. There's, a, there's another option that's imp- also improbable, and that's that he was crazy. That, that he was self-deluded. That he really did believe these things about himself, and therefore that's why he went around saying And they said this same thing. Look at John 1, verse 20. The crowd answered, you have a demon, which is code for you are crazy. Uh, that's basically saying the same thing. So those are the other two options. But l- here's what's so interesting about this story. As you read the story and you realize there are, there's a crowd of people there who don't know what to believe. They're kind of searching. There are the religious leaders who've already made up their mind and they're trying to kill him. There's Jesus and his disciples who are all there. And then there are these guards. There are these temple guards who the Pharisees sent to arrest Jesus. But they get there And they're like, we don't really know what to do with this guy. And so when they go back to the Pharisees, the Pharisees are like, hey, why didn't you arrest him? You were supposed to arrest him and bring him back to us. And listen to what they said. Remember, they were there. They heard all of this. They heard the crowd's opinion. They knew the Pharisees' opinion. They heard what Jesus said. They heard what the disciples said. And listen to what they said. No one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like this man. Does that sound like a group of people who would have believed that Jesus was a lunatic? Or would have believed that Jesus was a liar? You see, when they went and they heard the teachings of Jesus for themselves, maybe they were biased, maybe they were unbiased, I don't know, but something about that caused them to defy the orders of their bosses and refuse to arrest Jesus. And here's what's interesting about that. When you consider the options of Jesus being a lunatic or a liar, the, the proof is in the fruit that has been born. You look back over 2,000 years of history since the life and ministry of Jesus and since the church, and you see the positive effects of Jesus' teaching on culture for more than 2,000 years in every part of the planet. Hospitals and schools and lives that have been changed. Does that sound like the fruit of somebody who is a liar or a lunatic? It, it, see, that, that's, why that, that's what makes that so improbable is that we have the benefit of something that they didn't have 2,000 years ago. The observers in John chapter 7 didn't have the benefit of 2,000 years of history to see what will come of this lie, what will come of this lunacy over 2,000 years. 
2,000 years later, we stand and we recognize and know there's been no figure in all of human history who's impacted as much change, social and every other way, as Jesus Christ, who was a peasant carpenter, who born in an obscure village called Bethlehem and raised in another obscure village called Galilee. So, so one, one impossible option is that he's a good man. Two improbable options is that he's a liar or a lunatic, which only leaves us from the inescapable option, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is who he claimed to be. And there were people in the crowd who believed that. Look what it says in John seven forty one. Others said, this is the Christ. This is him. See, there were people who believed. There was a small segment, but they believed. Many of them believed so much, were so convinced by the teachings, the ministry, the miracles, the signs, ultimately then by his sacrificial death, and then after three days when God raised him from the dead, it sealed the deal. They were so convinced that they were willing to die, not for what they believed, but for what they saw. They died because they were witnesses of it. And it changed their life, and it ultimately changed the world. And it's the reason, 2,000 years later, we still wrestle with the same questions the crowd wrestled with in John chapter 7. So, so one, one account, encounter Jesus had um, with his disciples, they had been teaching, and he had them all gathered around. And as he was gathered around, he was saying, hey, guys, you know, who are people saying that I am? Let's just take an inventory here. Let's just pause for a minute and say, and they began to list all the things. Well, some people are saying you're a prophet some people are saying, you know, that, that you're Elijah who's come back. And they kind of rattled off all the things that people say, all the, some of the same things we're still saying 2,000 years later. And then Jesus asked this question that really cuts to the heart of, I think, where we are today. He turned on them and he said, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And it's interesting to read John chapter 7 and, and, and sort of speculate on all the different theories about who Jesus might have been. But ultimately, this question comes back to you. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he, is he just a good teacher? Well, it's awfully hard to defend that. Is he a liar? If he is, then aren't we wasting our time here? I mean, you guys could do a lot more productive things with a Sunday morning then come to church if he's a liar. It, was he crazy? Again, what are, we, what are we doing as a church and what are we doing as individual believers if, he's just, if he was just a deluded, self-deluded man who stumbled on some good teachings that have endured 2,000 years? Or do you in fact believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world, that he came as a sacrifice for your sins and for the sins of all the world, and that through his death, sin can be defeated, death can be overcome, and because of his resurrection, he has made a way for us to be reunited with God. And, and listen, if you believe that, if you, if you believe that, and you've heard these other options, here's what you need to know about Jesus. He is either, you either have to take all of him or none of him. He doesn't leave you the option just to, to let him be a good moral teacher in your life who sometimes you choose to follow and sometimes you choose to worship. I mean, if this is true, and in fact he is the Christ, he is the son of the living God, then he demands something from us. He demands that we follow him and that we commit ourselves to him. It demands a higher level of commitment on our part. If he's God, 
And something else that it teaches, if this is true, something else that it means, it means that your morality and your good behavior will never be enough. Never. Because why would he have needed to have come and sacrificed himself the way he sacrificed himself if some way there was a possibility that you and I, through our good behavior, our religiosity, our morality, would be able to earn our way back to God? And so this morning, the question that comes to us from John chapter 7 is, who do you say that he is? And and I know, here's the thing, for some of you, and maybe your faith journey, you're young in your faith journey, there is no more important question than this. And, And it is worth all the time and the energy that you would invest in pursuing the answer to this. And you can best pursue it and understand it by yourself reading the Gospels, reading the stories in the life of Jesus to say, who is this man? For others of you who are here, and you, for you, this is, settled, this is a settled deal. There are people that God has placed in your circles who wrestle with this question. Or maybe they're not even thinking about this question yet. But, but Jesus just sort of is an icon, a good luck charm in their life. You need to understand and know that the questions and the, and the uh, suggestions that the people had in John chapter 7 are the same ones that your circle of, of questioners are asking today. And you need to be equipped to challenge them on this. Not, not to confront them and be combative, but just to lovingly point out these truths and these realities about Jesus to help them see what that crowd saw. Is Jesus just another good man? No way. Is he a liar or a lunatic? Then we should leave him in the dustbins of history. Is he Lord? Then we should follow him with all that we have and all that we are. Let's pray together. Father, this morning as we, um, as we read this lengthy passage and we consider uh, these complicated ideas, this crowd and the argument that was going on, I'm just struck by how relevant this chapter is to us today. Father, we wrestle with these same things. And Lord, today, I know there are people here in this room who maybe they weren't conscious of the vocabulary of the argument, but somewhere deep in their heart, they were wrestling with these questions. Father, I pray that after reading this passage, that the words of John 7, the words of Jesus, the words of the crowd uh, would stay in our hearts and our minds and force us to come to our own conclusion And maybe it would just be like the guards. We would say, we've never heard anybody talk like this. But Father, we pray that as we seek after you, you will reveal your son Jesus to us. For those of us who are believers, Father, that we might be better equipped to communicate the truth of who Jesus is, that just like the early disciples who were willing to be witnesses, even to the point of death, to proclaim the truth, Father, that we also might be faithful to tell the story of the hope of the world. Father, for anyone who's here today, who has found themselves at a place where maybe they're ready to finally resolve the question, to say, I believe that Jesus is Lord. Lord, I pray that today, maybe just through marketing communication card, maybe today they would, they would indicate, they would begin a conversation in a small group. They would reach out and ask to, for somebody to pray with them and to learn more. And that, Lord, they would take that simple step of faith to say, Lord, I believe. I know I've sinned. 
I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead, and I commit my life to follow after him. Father, that even right now, that simple, simple prayer would be sincere on their hearts and that they'd be assured of their salvation. Father, we love you. We thank you for the way you have so graciously loved us, and you've demonstrated that love by sending Jesus, who is Lord of all. We pray in his name. Amen.